0: Deadline, White House, is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Hi there, everyone. It's four o'clock in New York. We start with what is an extraordinary statement, even by the standards of a failed wannabe autocrat who plotted a coup against his own government and recently dined with white supremacists. The disgraced ex president made his contempt for our democracy as clear as ever when he called for the United States Constitution to be, quote, terminated. From the Washington Post reporting on this development, quote, Trump's message on the true social platform reiterated the baseless claims he has made since 2020, that the election was stolen. But he went further by suggesting that the country abandon one of its founding documents. That post came a day after Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, claimed he would expose how Twitter engaged in free speech suppression in the run-up to the 2020 election. But his Twitter files did not show that the tech giant bent to the will of Democrats, But Trump doubled down anyway on Sunday, saying this, quote, unprecedented fraud requires unprecedented cure, exclamation point. Of course, there was no fraud, unprecedented or otherwise, in the last election. And then in a post earlier today, Trump tried to walk it all back, denying that he ever called for the, quote, termination of the Constitution. Charlie Sykes puts it perfectly in the bulwark today. On Earth 2.0, a rational and totally imaginary world. This would be the clearest, easiest, most obvious moment for Republicans to rid themselves of this troublesome and deranged demagogue. But we are on Earth 1.0, and this is the Republican Party of 2022 we're talking about. It is a party completely enthralled to its most extreme elements, addicted to all sorts of disinformation, and essentially committed to an anti-democratic agenda. And that is why you have Republicans saying things like this. Just listen to Republican Congressman Dave Joyce on ABC on Sunday.
2: Can you support a candidate in 2024 who's for suspending the constitution? Well, again, it, it's
0: early. I think there's going to be a lot of people in the primary. I think at the end of the day, uh, you will say, uh, whoever the Republicans end up pick, I'll fall in behind because that's- Even if it's Donald Trump, and he's
2: called for suspending the Constitution?
0: Well, again, I think it's going to be a big field. I don't think Donald Trump's going to clear out the field like he did in six. That's game. not
2: what I'm asking. I'm asking you, if he's the nominee, will you support him?
0: Uh, I will support whoever the Republican nominee is. And I don't don't think that at this point he'll be able to get there because I think there's a lot of other good quality candidates out there. It's a remarkable
2: statement. You just you'd support a candidate who's come out for suspending the constitution?
0: Well, you know, he says a lot of things. You have to take him in context. But that's an extraordinary
2: statement. You can't come out against someone who's for suspending the constitution.
0: Well, first off, it has no ability to suspend the constitution. Secondly, but he says he's for it. Well. You know, he says a lot of things that uh, but that doesn't mean that it's ever going to
3: happen. So you got to accept uh, exact fact from fantasy.
1: Let's not speed past that moment. This is exactly how Trump happened. All of the Republicans in Washington and around the country said, mm, says all sorts of stupid. You know what? That I means he's going to do it. He did all of it. All of it. And then some. New York Times reports that while just a handful of Republicans did do more than that, condemn these specific comments from Trump, quote, far more remain silent, including Kevin McCarthy, the House minority leader who hopes to become speaker when Republicans take control of the chamber in January. And who made a point last month of declaring that Republicans would read the Constitution out loud on the House floor on their first day in charge. You can't make this up. But for people whose dedication to the Constitution goes beyond just lip service, literally, the significance of Trump's comments are clear. From one Liz Cheney, quote, Donald Trump believes we should terminate, quote, all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution, to overturn the 2020 election. That was his view on January 6, and remains his view today. No honest person can now deny that Trump is an enemy of the Constitution. That is where we begin today with some of our favorite reporters and friends. Jake Sherman is here, co-founder of Punchbowl News and an MSNBC contributor. Former senator and MSNBC contributor Claire McCaskill's back. And Miles Taylor's here, former chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security, as well as a co-founder of the Political Party Forward. Um, I don't know where to start. I mean, Jake, you were here when we thought... That the bottom had finally announced itself, Trump dining with um, anti-Semites and white supremacists. Um, But here we are terminating the Constitution. What's going on? (laughs)
4: <laughs> That's a good question. What is going on? Um, I, listen, I, I think that this is going to be, uh, leave aside the substance, which is horrible in and of itself. This is now the story of the week. This is what every Republican uh, in the Senate and in the House is going to have to respond to for the next, you know, five days and, and going forward. So it's the president again, putting his party in a terrible position of having to to respond to this nonsense. Um, and, and by the way, the clip that you showed of Dave Joyce is striking for a lot of reasons, Nicole. But most notably, Joyce is one of the party's remaining moderates. Joyce is, um, leads a Republican governing group that just last week um, uh, put out a letter in favor of McCarthy and said, we need to get down to the business of governing. And now uh, on uh, on a Sunday show, he indicated that he wouldn't dump Trump even after he said he wanted to suspend the Constitution. So just another mess created by the former president for Republicans. Republican.
1: I mean, I guess, Miles, that's what cowardice looks like. Maybe I'll play it again. Um, Here's all the times, though, that we already know Trump sought to suspend the Constitution. It's all um, on tape. This is from the public hearings of the January 6th committee.
5: President Donald Trump's intention was to remain president of the United States, despite the lawful outcome of the 2020 election and in violation of his constitutional obligation to relinquish power. What the president wanted the vice president to do was not just wrong. It was illegal and unconstitutional.
6: But in your view, what he was asking you to do would have violated your oath to the Constitution, both the United States Constitution and the Constitution of the state of Arizona. Yes, sir. I did not want for the Department of
7: Justice to be put in a posture where it would be doing things that were not consistent with the truth, were not consistent with its own uh, appropriate role, or were not consistent with the Constitution.
5: And I assume you also would agree the president has a particular obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed.
8: That is one of the president's obligations, correct.
5: There is no defense that Donald Trump was duped or irrational. No president can defy the rule of law and act this way in a constitutional republic, period. My question for you,
1: Miles, is where are the rest of your former colleagues? Where is former Secretary Mattis today? Where is former Chief of Staff John Kelly today? Where is H.R. McMaster today? Where are the people who care about the Constitution and making sure Donald Trump is never elevated to president of the United States again?
2: Well, and Nicole, as you said, where are all the other sitting Republican members of Congress on this question? And I'll address yours in a second here, but I'll say one of the very first uh, senior Republican members of Congress who expressed concern to me about Donald Trump in 2015 was a man named Jim Colby. And Jim Colby was a Republican congressman who uh, I was having a conversation with. And I said, look, I think Donald Trump you know, if he makes his way up in the GOP is going to be a threat to the party. And Jim was one of the first people that said to me, no, Miles, he'll be a threat to the Constitution. And I later had to tell, tell Jim he was right when I was in the Trump administration, because as you know, Nicole, his own cabinet thought he was such a threat to the Constitution that they considered suspending his presidency with the 25th Amendment because Trump wanted to suspend the Constitution. In fact, he talked often lovingly about the Insurrection Act, which he saw as a way to deploy the military and subvert the Constitution's uh, efforts to make sure that civilian law enforcement uh, is what enforced the law of the land. Uh, Now, Jim Colby actually just passed away this past weekend, and I'm sure he would have been heartbroken to see the continued cowardice of members of his own party. And he was heartbroken till the end that Republicans didn't speak up, whether they were people around Donald Trump who knew better and privately vented their worries Uh, and didn't say anything publicly, or whether they're sitting in Congress now, people that served with him and are still keeping those opinions quiet, unable even on a Sunday show to say they wouldn't support someone who would suspend the ultimate law of the land, the U.S. Constitution. I think it's absolutely terrifying. We've talked before about the cowardice pandemic that's sweeping this town. But I want to note one other thing, Nicole. You said at the top of this program that this whole latest episode started because Trump saw these so-called Twitter files that Elon Musk released about how Twitter was allegedly catering to Democrats during the election. I'm going to tell you something. At that time period, I worked for Google and I worked on election security issues. And I was in the room when representatives from Twitter and other companies were working on these issues. And guess who was also in the room? The Trump White House. The Trump White House was briefed on the efforts of the tech companies to protect their platforms and I never once heard a single complaint from, complaint from the Trump White House about how the tech sector was trying to keep nefarious actors from taking over their platform. So this is just ridiculous. And I hope Elon Musk is hearing from people at Twitter who were involved in those efforts who know that the Trump campaign and White House were briefed on what was being done to protect those platforms.
1: I mean, Miles, that's important context. I mean, Trump hears, you know, it's raining and he says election fraud. Trump hears it's snowing and he says election fraud. Trump hears Twitter fires. I mean, what what is is there any why is this a trigger? Is it because it's his same sort of quasi state media actors who are all pumped up by what Elon Musk is doing?
2: Uh, really, Nicole, it's it's the absolutely desperate effort of the twice impeached, disgraced ex-president to find a rationale for subverting the rules to get himself back into power. Now, I, I want to point to parallels here. Just on, on November 3rd, 2020, on Election Day, Politico published a report that that warned about Trump's ominous threats about the election maybe being rigged. And I said something to the effect of, I really worry that this is him seeding the narrative to justify under, uh, undertaking a coup in the election, subverting the election, and it potentially could lead to violence. Right now, we're seeing Trump seed a narrative about, quote-unquote, suspending the Constitution. I think it's the type of narrative we're going to see come back during his third campaign for the U.S. presidency as a way to suggest that the, that the rules and regulations of the election themselves should be thrown out to give him a fast track to the nomination. Mark my words, that type of argument is going to come back as we get into next year. And that's what I think he's doing here. He's trying to find anything he can to cast uh, the rules as illegitimate, to cast the last election as illegitimate and to try to make excuses to get himself to the front of the pack that he knows he's maybe not necessarily uh, as close to the front of as he was before.
1: And if we could just stick with parallels for a second, Claire, that's how the deadly insurrection happened. Trump knew he lost. All the Republicans knew he lost. They decide to let him cry it out, like an 18-month-old. We, we knocked that out around two, I think, in the toddler book I read. They let him cry it out. He seeds disinformation. Stuart Rhodes says, you know, I'm waiting for him to declare the Insurrection Act. Stuart Rhodes is now on his way to J-I-A-L jail. Donald Trump being allowed to cry it out, is only possible when Republicans like Mr. Joyce and Mr. McCarthy do nothing. And when you look at the, we talk about it here every day, the current threat of domestic violent extremism, it is inextricably linked from lies told by Trump and his allies in the media.
9: Yeah, the lies, um, it's really interesting if you look at the beginning of the biggest lie of all, um, and I know that Trump supporters are probably not listening to us today, but if any of your family members are Trump supporters, let them know the following. He lied when he said that he loved his supporters. He lied when he said he loved law enforcement. He lied when he said he loved the military. He lied when he said he loved this country. And he lied when he said he loved the Constitution. The biggest lie he told was the oath of office. He was lying as he had his hand on the Bible that he would uphold the Constitution. The only thing Donald Trump was ever interested in was any lie he needed to tell to get power and hold on to power so he could look himself in the mirror and convince himself that he's wonderful because deep down he knows he's not. And that kind of person is very dangerous with power, and he's getting more and more desperate uh, the dinner with Kanye and the white supremacist was desperate. This was desperate. And the idea that you have a journalist who calls herself a journalist, had Kevin McCarthy on TV over the weekend and didn't even ask the future Speaker of the House whether or not it was OK that the president of his party said, get rid of the Constitution. I mean, this crime is being committed all over the landscape of Republicans and Republican sycophants, including some on another network. And it is about time for somebody to be a leader here, because if they are, you know what's going to happen? They're going to win. A leader right now in the Republican Party would win, but they're all too afraid. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. And I mean,
1: I, I guess, Jake Sherman, if they could stay in their sandbox and it didn't affect anybody else and it didn't endanger the country, if you've got one party's leader intent on ripping up, the terminating the Constitution, I want to be accurate. It wouldn't be a story. But that's not where we are. I, I want to read you what the White House, the Biden White House had to say about this. Um the American Constitution is a sacrosanct document that for over 200 years has guaranteed that freedom and the rule of law prevail in our great country. The Constitution brings the American people together, regardless of party, and elected leaders swear to uphold it. It's the ultimate monument to all of the Americans who have given their lives to defeat self-serving despots that abused their power and trampled on fundamental rights, attacking the Constitution and all it stands for is anathema to the soul of our nation and should be universally condemned. You cannot only love America when you win. Um, How many Republicans, you know, injected with truth serum, with nobody recording the comments, agree with that? Seriously, because Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't, Donald Trump doesn't. I mean, some of them are on the record not agreeing with that. How many do you think agree with that, though?
4: I would say most, um, but I, I would say this in addition, the, the thing that is going to let Republicans off the they're going to try to get themselves off the hook here, is they're going to say that Trump later walked back those statements. And it's going to be kind of like what Joyce said here. It's going to be like, well, he actually didn't mean it. You know, he, it was out of context, which it wasn't. It was in perfect context. He said what he said. Uh, and he believes it in that the larger issue. Nicole, is just like the dinner with the Nazi. Um, it, is, it gives permission, um, uh, a permission structure for people to say these crazy things and start to believe them, you know, among his base. He, people could say, actually, maybe the Constitution isn't that great. Maybe it does need to be updated. Maybe we should throw it out. Maybe there shouldn't be election laws. So Trump saying it gives that permission structure to have that conversation, which is obscene and absurd. Just like it gives a permission structure to neo Nazis, anti Semites, and white supremacists that they should somehow be normalized, which they shouldn't. They have no, they have no place in our society. They shouldn't have a place in our society. So this, in addition, this will give a permission structure for people to start talking about this stuff. And it's just, it's ridiculous and offensive.
1: Um, and any sentence that starts with just like the dinner with the Nazi. I mean, it's, it's, I cannot believe this is where we are. It is the natural extension. No, you're right. He is
4: literally a Nazi. Yes, Uh, he's a neo-Nazi. In his words,
1: again, we're not smearing him. It's how he describes himself. So uh, the NBC um, Hill team has just fed me in some reporting and I want to go through it with you, Jake. McConnell has nothing to say about Trump's comments on the constitution today, but he says he'll talk about it Tomorrow. Uh, my colleague, Garrett Haig, um, asked uh, uh, Senator Blunt, let me play that for you. All right, we don't have it, but here's what he said. So Garrett says, Trump and his comments over the weekend about terminating the Constitution, what's your reaction? Blunt says, I think you take an oath to the Constitution. You don't take it provisionally. And I can't imagine that the former... President would make a statement. I mean, they all know he made the statement, even if they can't imagine it. So Garrett says a lot of people see a statement like that and they say, you know, what's it going to take for other Republicans to say enough of this guy? Blunt says, I've said all I have to say. Um, so here we are again, just like, as you just said, just like the dinner with the Nazi, no distance being put between Donald Trump, who is against the United States Constitution for the white supremacists and the Nazi he dined with um, nothing. No, and, and weaker. I mean, impeached twice, lost the U.S. Senate for Republicans twice, lost the presidential in 2020, got, you know, shellacked in the midterms in 18 and really made it impossible for anything more than a little red dribble in 2022. And they got nothing.
4: You know, I, I will say this about McConnell. I think he's probably waiting to be on camera because I think he's he uh, he does his press conference on Tuesdays, so he typically likes to say these things on camera. I imagine, just like last week when he said anybody who would dine with these Nazis or white supremacists do not belong anywhere close to the White House, I have to imagine he'll say something similar. Roy Blunt retiring. Um, I'm not, again, I'm not making excuses. I'm just putting context around this. I think he, he basically, in my conversations with him in the last couple weeks, has had zero patience for trump and zero desire to talk about him but yeah, this is where we've been since 20, since 2017 nicole this is not a surprise i mean every single week when trump is in the white house we don't have to revisit it but every single week there was some other bizarre happenstance every in every week since then there's been some other ridiculous comment by trump and they're sick of it that doesn't mean but but guess what nicole i didn't make them run for public office They ran for public office as Republicans because they're adults and they're free thinking adults. If they don't want to have to to answer for Trump anymore, then they could say, I'm done with the guy and I'm not or I'm not going to be in public office anymore. I don't have much sympathy for people who don't want to talk about Trump just because it's inconvenient for them. They decided to run for public office. I didn't make that decision for them.
1: And Miles, what's different now? What we know now? thanks in part to the public sworn testimony of Stephen Ayers, is that Trump's words do manifest themselves into violent actions and the intention to carry out even more violent actions. Hanging Mike Pence didn't come from this show. Wasn't our idea. We would never advocate for that. Trump supporters did. And Kevin McCarthy's got nothing to say about it. There is a current domestic terror threat warning that the Jewish American communities and institutions and LGBTQ community and institutions are under threat. Who attacks them? Republicans and right-leaning media outlets and voices. So what's different now is there are a whole lot of people in this country that look over their shoulder and don't feel safe because no Republican ever feels like condemning Donald Trump's garbage hate speech and smears against the Constitution. That is why we are where we
2: are. Yeah, Nicole, I've, I've got to I've got a hat tip Jake Sherman here because he said the operative words permission structures and folks might roll their eyes at Jake and say, oh, well, you know, uh, if Jake says that uh, Donald Trump says it uh, and then everyone believes it, that's not necessarily true. But simply go back to, as Blair said earlier, the big lie. That was a ridiculous fringe conspiracy theory. But then Donald Trump said it. And two and uh, two and, you know, some years later, uh, you've got 75% of Republicans who still believe that big lie. So to Jake's point, you create that permission structure to say the Constitution should be terminated, and it opens the pathway for millions of Americans to start believing that and to start spreading that. And as you know, Nicole, that can then jump the tracks into violence. At the beginning of the Trump administration, there were only a couple of hundred domestic terrorism investigations in the United States. Now, it sounds like a lot, but compared to international terror, there were thousands. By year one of that administration, it had gone up to a thousand. There were as many domestic terror investigations of ISIS as there were of domestic terrorism, which is the first time I'd ever seen that in my career. By the end of the Trump administration, do you know where we were? DHS and the FBI had nearly 3,000 domestic terrorism investigations across the United States. It had blown up threefold over his first year. That's stunning, and it shows you this isn't just talk. The talk can lead to physical intimidation and violence. And we're in the midst of that right now as a country, as we saw weeks ago with Paul Pelosi, all the way back to the insurrection with Mike Pence, as you said, and as we've seen with the roughly tenfold increase in death threats against sitting U.S. members. Of Congress.
1: Claire, what is the beginning of the beginning of getting out of this or are we know we're near that?
9: Well, it's a good question. Um you know, I think what really is going to be the death knell for trumpism is in fact Kevin McC- McCarthy, a leading a, a razor-thin majority in the house. Um because crazy is going to be on parade every day. Mm. Uh he is going to elevate and amplify those parts of the party that he must have to get that title that he's yearned for for decades. And he's showing that he is not a leader right now. I mean, uh, what would really be the end of this is if the leadership of the House and the Senate and Republican governors from all over the country came together for a joint press conference in Washington and said, we've had enough. We've had enough. Um, We now know, they know he means what he's saying, Nicole. They can't stand him. They know he's hurting the Republican Party. But, you know, the worst part about this is they know he means it. He mm. wants to suspend the Constitution. He wanted those people to attack Congress and hurt people and cause an insurrection and a bloody con- a, a, a bloody conflict in the Capitol that day. He wanted it. He was glad it was happening. And they know that. That's why this is so egregious. And, and the, uh, the irony is if they would all come together and reject it, it'd be done. He'd, he'd have 10 or 15 percent of the Republican Party. The racists and the bigots would still want to hang out with him, but everybody else would be gone. But they simply do not have the strength of character to do it. Well, and so, as
1: Jake said, another week gone to defending the most extreme elements, not even just in the Republican Party, but of the dark web. I mean, it's, it's become if it wasn't so dangerous and cynical and sick, it would be commonal comical. I mean, the, the, the politics of it are so politically suicidal. It's just madness. Jake Sherman, thank you so much for bringing us your reporting. Miles Taylor, thank you for sharing your expertise and taking us in the room at Google. Claire sticks around, when we come back, the conservative Supreme Court hearing a case today over free speech and discrimination. A business owner who says she doesn't want same-sex couples as her customers, despite a law that is on the books there to protect those couples. It could set the tone in this country for all types of discrimination, depending on the outcome. We'll talk about that coming up, plus the White House and the FBI are very closely watching what has happened in North Carolina. There was an armed attack on two energy substations, leaving thousands of people there without power for days now. The search for answers about who was behind it and why it happened is underway. Later in the program, the two Senate candidates in Georgia delivering closing messages today. Our good friend Joy Reid is on the ground there, and she will be our guest. All those stories and more when Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. So back in 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court took up a case pitting LGBTQ rights against religious conservatives. It narrowly ruled in favor of a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Remember that? But the majority opinion essentially said at the time that it would wait for a quote future controversy to decide the broader legal questions about whether the First Amendment allows businesses open to the public to discriminate based on religion or free speech objections. In the years since, the court refused several opportunities to answer that question, but today the day has come. In opening arguments earlier, the now 6-3 conservative supermajority appeared sympathetic to a website designer who says Colorado's anti-discrimination law violates her right to free speech. She's suing on the premise that she could be punished if she were to refuse to design a website for a same-sex couple. Civil rights groups say that what Smith is asking for A request rejected by two lower courts is a, quote, license to discriminate. The New York Times says her opponents say a ruling in her favor would allow businesses engaged in expression to, quote, refuse service to say black people or Muslims based on odious but sincerely held convictions. And here was Justice Sonia Sotomayor this morning.
8: How about people who don't believe in interracial marriage? or about people who don't believe that disabled people should get married what's where's the line i can choose not to sell to those people not this website because it's my speech
1: Joining our coverage, Maya Wiley, former assistant U.S. attorney, now president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Brian Fallon's back, executive director of the Progressive Judicial Advocacy Group, Demand Justice. And Claire McCaskill's still here. Um, Maya, I want to play one more um, piece of sound today. This is from Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson with another scenario about where this could lead.
10: Can you give me
5: your thoughts on a photography business in a shopping mall? during this holiday season they want to have a sign next to the santa that says only white children why isn't your uh, argument that they should be able to do that and may- maybe it is because in the photograph itself the objection is not contained in that photograph but in addition i think it's important to remind the court that no, no 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 don't leave sorry what do you mean i mean the objection just like your Uh, client's objection is to expressions that uh, violate their own views of what is being depicted.
1: I mean, Maya, what what justices um, Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Justice Sotomayor lay out is is truly terrifying, um, but seems um, possible.
11: Sadly, both are true. It is terrifying and it is possible in a court that has taken a case that flies in the face of its own precedent, something we've seen before. And here's what I mean by that. Um, and, and I'm going to get personal here because my parents, a black man and a white woman, got married in 1961 in this country. And that was before the Supreme Court in Loving versus Virginia said, interracial marriages. You can't discriminate. You can't stop people from getting married because of their race and had all these implications because my parents had to find a place where they could find people willing to serve them for their marriage process, uh, even though it was not illegal in New York State, which is where they lived at the time. And I look back on the arguments that were made for people, for my parents, that used religion as an argument against black people, white people getting married because they were in love. And it's the same arguments that we are hearing right now in a First Amendment context, trying to use the same arguments that that A belief in what the Bible says, literally Harry Truman, the judge uh, in the county court that imprisoned the Lovings said, which was it's in the Bible. The judge himself had said that we had separate continents uh, with people of different races because God didn't intend them to mix. Well, I sit here as someone who is a product of that mixture saying we are hearing the exact same arguments exactly the same. And it is because the implications that we're hearing from Justices Sotomayor and and Ketanji Brown-Jackson are exactly the same implications. It comes for all of us. So we have to stand together on this.
1: Maria, I want to follow up with something that I, I, read, I read twice. I couldn't believe this was real. Uh, this is NBC's reporting. Alito jokes today about Black Santa during arguments. Alito asked whether a black Santa at the mall is obligated to take a picture with a child dressed up in a KKK outfit, even if he doesn't want to. Justice Elena Kagan asked whether the same applies regardless of whether the child is black or white or any other characteristic. Alito quipped, quote, you do see a lot of black children in KKK outfits, right? All the time. End quote. Drawing scattered laughter.
11: Is This where we are. You know, apparently it is where we are and we're here for all the wrong reasons and it has nothing to do with what our Constitution says and with the way in which we look to the Supreme Court to protect fundamental rights. This Supreme Court said it is a fundamental right To allow people to choose who they marry, even if they want to marry someone who's of the same sex. It said that. So now to be taking this case, to be hearing this kind of argument, to be having this kind of crude discussion, this frankly... I mean, I think deeply troubling uh, discussion from some of the people who sit in the most powerful seats in this land, who literally can determine whether or not we have something as fundamental as a right to decide who we interact with and to have private sector businesses not discriminate against us because we have demanded the dignity, the dignity of being recognized for who we love and and. Being able to have our families recognized, our humanity recognized, that's what we're talking about here. And, you know, I want my daughter, who's a lesbian, to be able to get married and to do it her way and not to be told that she doesn't have the same dignity that I have. That can't stand.
1: Frank Fallon, um, I'm sorry to make you go after my, uh, <laughs> sorry to make anyone do that. Um, let me read you this from the New York Times. The decision to hear this case at all, Ms. Smith's case, was probably driven by several factors. An increasingly assertive sixth justice conservative supermajority, a sense that Ms. Smith's designs were more likely to be expression protected by the First Amendment, and the desire of at least some justices to undo or limit Obergefell the 2015 decision establishing a right to same-sex marriage. So so this is real. It's on. What Justice Thomas wrote in his opinion when Roe versus Wade was overturned is very much part of the fabric of this court. And what Justice Sotomayor described as the stench of the court, she was not impugning her fellow justices. She was talking about the Republican legislators who were passing laws because of the kinds of justices that Trump had picked. Um, for the Supreme Court nominations. Um, There's a sense, I think sometimes, that the left is overreacting, but literally every concern that anyone on the left has had about this court for two decades has come to pass and then some.
12: Right. Everything about this case today is dripping with bad faith. The court's decision to hear this case, the arguments being put forward uh, by the people bringing this case. I wanna inform your audience about two groups. Uh, let's peel the curtain back for a second. We have two groups here, the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Beckett Fund that have brought many of these cases, including today's case, was brought and organized by the Alliance Defending Freedom and a key amicus brief was filed by the Beckett Fund. These are groups that if any of the people that worked at these organizations ran for Congress in a purple district, they'd be tarred as extreme and completely lose the election. They hate the direction of the country in the last 50 years. They oppose the Roe decision. They oppose the Obergefell decision. So what do they do? They go out and they try to find sympathetic finding plaintiffs and they try to package up these um, these newfangled constitutional arguments that are just dressed up attempts to create a new right to discriminate. They serve it up to the justices and then justices like Alito and Clarence Thomas that have been licking their chops to try to decide these cases in a favorable way in favor of so-called religious liberty, take the cases, and presumably are going to issue a decision in in favor of this uh, website design company. But this goes exactly to what Elena Kagan was talking about in several appearances that she made throughout the summer and the fall. She said, courts start to lose their legitimacy when the public starts to view them as not behaving like courts. And that's what's happening here. We're only seven years removed from the Obergefell decision that decided that there was a right to same sex marriage in this country. We're only four years from that decision where they essentially punted on a case with similar facts. The only thing that has changed from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and from the Obergefell case seven years ago is that Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are no longer on this court. So justices like Alito and Thomas now believe they have the votes to strike a blow to create a new right to discriminate against same sex couples in this country. I think the public will see through that and it will just build the case about the loss of legitimacy for this court.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're already there. I think you're less than 20 percent of all Americans who feel um, very good or strongly approve of the United States Supreme Court, which is down, I think, 40 points from 20 years ago. Um, Everyone's sticking around. I need to get Claire in on this dark money point. Um, A quick break for us. We'll be right back. We're back with Maya, Brian, and Claire. So Claire, David Cole, the ACLU legal director, said this, quote, if 303 creative Smith's business wins here, we will live in a world in which any business that has an expressive service can put up a sign that says women not served, Jews not served, black people not served, and claim a First Amendment right to do so. Um, Is that where we're
9: heading? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about this case. Uh, They are going to hang their head. There's no question in my mind that the Supreme Court is once again going to backtrack on rights that Americans enjoy. This is a new thing with this court. They are the take-away rights court, Mm. not the solidify your rights or establish your rights, but take them away. And they're doing it around two things, art and religion. Now, the last time I looked, those were pretty hard to define, How is putting up a technical website for a couple that's going to marry different than a chef making a plate of food with an artistic flair with, you know, I mean, we've all had plates of food that have an artistic flair to Mm -hmm. them. What is the difference there? And what is that when somebody says it's what I believe in my religion? How do you how do you combat that? How do you combat that? What if my religion is that I really believe literally what the Bible says that women shouldn't work outside the home? Does that mean that no longer um, can a photographer that works for a newspaper take pictures of successful women in the workplace? They talked about that hypothetical at the court this morning. So this is such a slippery slope. And the court is going to do permanent and lasting damage because what they're doing is very, very unpopular with most Americans and not for the wrong reasons, like it might have been back when they were making decisions on desegregation and civil rights, but rather it's the decisions are unpopular with Americans for the right reasons. And that is we should not discriminate in a country where all people are created equal. You know,
1: Brian, I haven't had a chance to talk to you since the midterms were, you know, 60 percent of respondents in our first round of exit polls opposed Dobbs and opposed the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court appears right now to become for the left, the opportunity that the right made it for, what, 40, 60 years, right? A voting issue, an electoral emergency. Um, I, I guess my question is, how do you, so the, so the politics may be very good, but the damage done to the American people and people at risk of losing their rights, so grave. How do you, how do you balance the two? And how do you make sure you're storytelling on both?
12: Well, you're absolutely right, Nicole. The midterms told an an extremely important story, both in terms of evidencing the backlash to unpopular decisions like the Dobbs decision, and also vindicating the idea that democracy is actually a salient concern among the public, which was an open question right up until the weekend before the midterms. We had Democratic consultants going and criticizing President Biden for talking about our democracy being at stake. Both of these two issues, reproductive rights and the backlash to Dobbs, as well as the desire to uphold our democracy, point in favor of Democrats prosecuting a case against this court and that begins I think with doing things like investigating the recent revelations in the New York Times report from a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. about influence campaigns that have been waged to try to sway these right-wing justices and that's why I think it's great news for instance that the house has announced in the twilight of their time holding the gavel that they're going to hold a hearing this week uh, I hope that they'll uh, call Reverend Shank the whistleblower in that an article to testify but really the hope for investigating these types of issues lies in the Senate since the house is going to be changing hands in, in a month and so I hope that the Senate, We'll take the baton up Durbin, White House, folks that have the gavel in the Senate, because it's one thing to make a case against the Supreme Court in terms of the unpopular decisions that it's reaching. It's another thing to show the sort of the corruption and the special interests are are at work, because that proves that this is not the rule of law that's being carried out. This is not constitutional interpretation that these justices are carrying out. It's power politics being played by politicians in robes. We need to tell that story to the American public.
11: Maya, last word. I, Brian is making really important points. I just want to say we're also seeing it how this very same court is making it difficult for we the people to decide who leads us, who are the same people who decide then who gets put on the court. So if we're really going to be a democracy, if we're really going to support a, a plural democracy, one that stands up for all of us and sees us all as equal, it means we have to have an equal voice. And while we were able to show up. At the polls, it was far too hard for far too many because Mm -hmm. of this very Supreme Court. They're about to consider more damage this week.
1: Maya Wiley, Brian Fallon and Claire McCaskill, let's come back, the four of us, when the House has, as as Brian said, in the twilight of the Democratic-controlled House, um, that hearing. Um, Thank you so much for being with us on the story today. Up next for us, officials are calling it targeted and intentional a targeted and intentional attack on a North Carolina power grid. The FBI is now involved. What they could be looking for in terms of a motive when we come back, that story's next.
0: Caesar's Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesar's Rewards.
1: 45,000 people were left without power amid freezing temperatures after a suspect or suspects shot up two power substations in Moore County, North Carolina. Around 7 p.m. Saturday evening, the FBI has now joined the investigation into what officials are describing as a targeted attack. Authorities say the motive is at this hour unknown. Asked if there was any connection to a 7 p.m. LGBTQ plus drag show in the city of Southern Pines on Saturday, the Moore County sheriff said, quote, it is possible. Yes, anything is possible, but we have not been able to tie anything back to the drag show. The county declared an overnight curfew for the remainder of the week, and around 33,000 people still, right now, remain without power. That could last until Thursday. Joining us, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, MSNBC National Security Analyst Frank Figluzzi. So, Frank, the FBI's there. Um, What questions are they asking? What would you ask?
6: Well, we all want to know who and why and that's where the fbi comes in not only generally when they respond to crimes and support locals and state authorities like this they're going to develop a profile they're going to help with forensic physical evidence all of that yes but we know the fbi of course is the lead agency for an act of domestic terrorism and they're going to be pursuing motive here and yes it's quick and convenient to say look we we know about this planned drag show in town it happens i think every year and yes The coordinators of that show said they had been receiving uh, unprecedented levels of threats or, or disagreement over this. So they'll be exploring all of that, the communications around that event. But let's not necessarily do the quick and convenient thing because there's something much larger going on here, Nicole. We saw something similar to this out in California in 2013. It's never been solved. It was at a Pacific Gas and Electric facility. Sniper fire was used to take out transformers at a substation. And it woke everybody up in law enforcement to how vulnerable the threat was to our infrastructure, our power grid, and lots of security took place after that. Cameras and patrols and all kinds of things that are in place now, particularly at a big player like Duke Energy in North Carolina where this happens. So this requires a degree of sophistication. The bigger thing going on here is the knowledge it takes to know what you're shooting at, what equipment, The relay system, the backup that's going to happen to the next substation when the first one you shoot at goes down. And then we know in law enforcement that there's been increased chatter and even specific instructions as recently as last year in something called the accelerationist handbook that shows you how to do this. The theory behind this, the idea, the bigger idea here is that you can quickly destabilize society and get to chaos if you pull the plug literally. They see electricity, Nicole, as the great equalizer in society that makes everybody kind of equal. They don't like that. So they want survivalists and white nationalists. This is the far right side of accelerationist theory, because there's a far left side too. But the far right side, which has been chatting about this ad nauseum for the past couple of years, thinks that you pull the plug and you get to the chaos to destabilize society. And the guys with the weapons, the guys who've trained on weekends for survivalists, you know, to become survivors, they they get the power at that point.
1: Frank, late last week, we also saw DHS and the FBI issue a new security, Homeland Security Bulletin specifically warning um, communities, uh, Jewish communities and LGBTQ plus communities that there was a heightened threat level against them. What questions will the FBI be asking in those areas?
6: So you're right to link these, these two things, the bulletin and, and then this event, because, you know, bulletins don't come out of thin air, right? You, it's intelligence driven. And so there's chatter out there that drove this bulletin. You know, the analysts aren't going, Hey, I think Tuesday we should release something about the threat of severe weather. No, there's a forecast happening, right? So let's see what happens with regard to FBI now going to DHS and their own analysts talking to each other and saying, yeah, now anything in that chatter that looks like North Carolina, that looks like the drag show in North Carolina. We all know you've been reporting on it that the, the drag show theme that, you know, oh, this is all about targeting children and grooming children. That's out there big time and people even on so-called mainstream. Media are claiming, you know, people should be killed for an association with drag shows. So all of this is combining to have an increased threat environment. Don't be surprised if this ends up not as some teenagers out for a, for a crazy night, but rather domestic terrorism motivated people.
1: It's just amazing how often we come back to a conversation about domestic terrorism. It's just it's a it's such a sea change, you know, in our adult lifetimes. Um, Frank Fuglisi, thank you so much for helping us understand it at this point. A quick break for us and then my friend and colleague Joy Reed will join us live from Georgia. Don't go anywhere.
3: We're not about to uh, be lulled into sleep because the issues are too urgent, the stakes are too high, and the differences between me and Herschel Walker are way too wide uh, for us to sleep through this election. I feel good, uh, but we're gonna press all the way to to victory.
1: Hi again, everyone, it's 5 o'clock in New York. Just over 24 hours from right now, the results will begin pouring in from Georgia's runoff election for the U.S. Senate seat. As you just heard Senator Raphael Warnock speak to, he and his opponent, Herschel Walker, are two strikingly different candidates, two strikingly different humans, candidates with vastly different approaches to the issues and to the solutions, as well as different approaches to their campaigns in the final days. Politico reports this, quote, Over the weekend, Warnock had the heavier schedule of the two. On Saturday and Sunday, he sprinted to six events in various cities, while also delivering a sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he serves as a senior pastor. He told parishioners that voting is a form of prayer. Walker appeared at two events, a tailgate in Atlanta before a University of Georgia football game on Sunday, where he did not speak, and a Sunday rally in Loganville, where his stump speech touched on everything from complaints about pronouns and critical race theory to funding law enforcement. That limited schedule of Walker's is reportedly making his Republican allies sweat. The New York Times reports this quote, some have feared that Walker, who was endorsed by Trump, is running out of time to draw in moderate conservatives and black voters who make up about one third of Georgia's electorate and appear to overwhelmingly support Warnock. But if white Republicans across the state show up for Walker, it could propel him to victory, which means this race could all come down to tomorrow and tomorrow's turnout. The runoff election has already seen record early voter turnout, especially in Democratic-leaning counties. According to the Secretary of State's office, 1.85 million voters have cast early ballots through the weekend, almost all of them in person. But in last month's general election, Republicans won the day of election day vote. The choice before Georgians is stark, as Senator Warnock spoke about this weekend when reflecting on his previous runoff victory just two years ago. Watch.
3: On January 5th, Georgia sends an African-American man and a Jewish man, both touched in different ways by John Lewis. I was his pastor. John was his mentee. Sending us both to the Senate on January 5th. And then on January 6th, the most violent assault on the nation's capital that we've seen since the War of 1812, driven by racist and anti-Semitic and xenophobic tropes. And so here's where we are, my beloved. We are somewhere between January 5th and January 6th. We shouldn't make this too easy. We can't claim that we are not January 6th. There is a sense in which we are. There is a sense in which we always have been. But the good news is that's not all we are. We are also January 5th when a kid who grew up in public housing, one of 12 children, the first college graduate in my family, can get elected to serve in the United States Senate. We're also the American January 5th.
1: Georgia's all-important runoff election is where we begin the hour with some of our most favorite reporters and friends. My dear friend and colleague, Joy Reid, joins us live from Georgia. She's the host of MSNBC's The Readout. Also joining us, Patricia Murphy, political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Alexi McCammon is here, Axios political reporter, also an MSNBC contributor, so Joy, you're there. Um, there's so much in the recent muscle memory of the election day he's talking about two years ago, and then it's it's almost. I mean, jump the shark is is is, is putting it sharply enough, I think, to to talk about Herschel Walker as an opponent. But just just take me through
13: what it feels like to be there. Well, I have to tell you, first of all, I'm at Manuel's Tavern, which is a uh, legendary spot uh, for Democrats here going all the way back to Bill Clinton was here, um, Jimmy Carter, you name it every sort of star of the Democratic Party has been here in this space. So this is sort of a sacred space to be coming from tonight. Uh, You know, I think there's a certain, on the one hand, level of exhaustion in Georgia. It it feels like this is the vote state in the union because they have to vote essentially twice a year, every year, uh, because of this runoff situation. And so there's a certain amount of exhaustion. But I also think that for particularly for Democrats um, in this state, it's a matter of pride at this point. Um, You know, they see Reverend Warnock, Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock as, you know, really a pride of the state. You know, Mm -hmm. he is obviously the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, a legendary church here. He's in that tradition. He's more of a traditional politician that's running a more traditional campaign. Uh, Whereas Herschel Walker is is something else. Uh, And and I think that at this point, it's a matter of pride of saying that Georgia ought to be represented by a certain uh, level of person with a certain level of dignity. And so that's kind of what I'm hearing over and over, that people that people are willing to come back out and do this again and again and again. Uh, I've heard some people express surprise that it did that, you know, Warnock didn't go over 50 percent in the uh, election in chief. And so there was, you know, our good friend Sahil Kapoor has some great. Great reporting that there's more than 77,000 voters who uh, you know reported not having voted in November because they thought they assumed Warnock would win, and are now coming out and voting. And that demographic, you know, they're more Asian American, they're more Latino, they're more African American. Demographically, they look a lot like Warnock voters. So I think there, there's a cautious optimism on the Warnock side of this, but I think there's a fear. I have to be honest mm-hmm. with you. I've heard from people all over the country who keep saying to me. Herschel Walker absolutely cannot be a United States Senator. There's a certain matter of yeah. humiliation in the idea of someone like that being a senator, to be blunt.
1: All right. So you and I are the two that sort of sit there white knuckled, <laughs> waiting for the results to come and wait for Kernagy to wave and have anything. And, and, and I think we both draw on some of the granular knowledge of campaigns. And, and it, what are you hearing from Sort of operatives about what they need tomorrow in terms of same day vote. When, when you look at the mountain of early vote, but but I, I know we're going to talk to Nick Corsini, You know the mail-in vote is is all but dried up because of the, the changes there. So just take me through yeah. what 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 the targets are for same day vote.
13: You know it's interesting, and you and I both know this very well. That it's, you know the, the way that campaigns operate has changed so much from when we were on the other sides of one another in 2004. It used to be that, you know, Republicans would run up these huge totals in uh, absentee vote. Democrats would, because of souls to the polls and weekend voting and younger voters, would run up big totals in early vote. And then it was sort of a race to the finish on election day. It really is now for the Herschel Walker campaign. They've kind of put it all on tomorrow, right? Like they have to get a huge turnout, possibly in the rain. It's Chilly down here. It's not like a warm Atlanta, you know. Week. It's raining, and so they now have to count on people being self-motivated enough to come because they're going to need to make up a lot of ground. Uh, the Warnock team has run up huge totals in the early vote. Um, just looking at the, you know, what the early vote looks like, it's heavily Democratic. It's slightly older, but there's a lot of young voters that are in there. It's got more Asian American, more African American, and more Latino voters than usual. Uh, And for a runoff, especially this is record early turnout. That is really a worn off vote. And so to to channel my Steve Kornacki for a minute, it's now going to be a question of whether enough people are motivated by Herschel Walker himself by something about him or his candidacy to come out and vote tomorrow. But he's barely campaigning. He's yeah. actually not campaigning. He's not talking to the press. He keeps the press 20 feet away from him. He's really not talking. Look, he challenged me to a debate, Nicole. <laughs> I can't find him. <laughs> he won't even call up. my team back. Look, we were like, sure, let's debate. He could have come here to Manuel, so he, he, We can't find him. Somebody tell him to call me. <laughs> if he's
1: watching. What is it, Herschel, if you're watching? Um, I, that's amazing. I mean, that, that, that's an amazing strategy. And, and I guess one more thing, Joy. Walker ran so far behind Kemp. And I think Kemp ran so far behind Raffensburger, neither Raffensburger nor Kemp are on the ballot. So wh- wh- like what's the what? what's the
13: what's the, right. what's the strategy? Well and we and Claire McCaskill said this you it was so, so brilliantly. The, the the motivation to vote for Herschel Walker in November was the possibility of having Walker have the seat that gave Republicans the majority. That's off the table now. He's trying to make this complicated argument now, I think for voters that, well, now it's about who gets committees, who gets the gavels. That's not really a motivating, you know, message for voters generally for a runoff election. And he's not good at making the argument because Mm -hmm. he really can't explain what the committee process is or what he'd be doing. Like, he's not good at explaining what being a senator means. So if he's the guy out there making the argument, well, this is about who gets committees and and chairmanships on committees. That's really not a strong argument for him to make. So the the sort of now what you're seeing is essentially a Herschel Walker campaign without Herschel Walker. They've essentially left it to to Governor Kemp. Kemp is sending out mailers that don't even talk about Herschel Walker. They're talking about all these other things about Georgia values. They're sort of alluding to Herschel Walker, but essentially they're hoping that people who like Kemp will come out because they like Kemp, not because of Herschel Walker himself, but that somehow Kemp voters will be self-motivated to vote for Herschel Walker. It is a very strange you know, pool table, one off the backboard, spin it around, miss the black ball and have it go into the you know, it's really complicated what they're trying to do.
1: Patricia, the other side of that is the sophistication of the Georgia voters. I mean, to Joy's point, they do they do this a lot. They do vote a lot and they've consumed a lot of political information over the last two to four years. What are you hearing?
10: So what I'm hearing is a lot of what Joy is hearing. Um, the two motivating factors, the two best things that Herschel Walker had going for him in November really didn't have anything to do with Herschel Walker. It was control of the U.S. Senate and the fact that Governor Brian Kemp is very, very popular here in the state. He had a lot of crossover appeal with Democrats and independents. Take those two pieces off of the ballot with Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker has a big problem. They wanted the Herschel Walker campaign wanted this conversation to be about Joe Biden and inflation. Um, unfortunately for them, it has become really a conversation about Herschel Walker. I was with Herschel Walker earlier today. He is back out on the campaign trail. He had a really light weekend. He had about four events earlier today. He'll have one later tonight. His events are smaller. His uh, speeches are very short, almost perfunctory. Um, he just did sort of a lap around the pool hall for one event. And it just feels like a campaign that is losing altitude. Um, It felt before the campaign like it was anyone's race. And right now it just feels like um, he and his team just feel a little bit defeated. Um, now, because it's Georgia, anything can happen. Mm. And I had conversations with a lot of voters at those Herschel Walker events, um just to sense their enthusiasm. They were super enthusiastic. This is way up in North Georgia. And these are the voters that he's got to get to turn out In Mm -hmm. larger numbers than they did in November, which is hard. And I said something like, tell me what you think about Raphael Warnock. And they just said evil. You know, Mm. tell me what you think about Herschel Walker- Christian. I believe him. I believe everything he believes. So there is a big group of Herschel Walker fans down here, whether that is a majority of Georgia voters, that is going to be the question without Kemp and the U.S. Senate on the ballot. It's a much, much harder mountain for that team to climb.
1: And, you know, Alexi, to, 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 to everything that's already been said, I know from my experience on campaigns that when a voter hears the same thing from Democrats as they do from Republicans, the hill becomes even steeper. And here's the Republican Lieutenant Governor, Jeff Duncan, um, basically saying, Herschel Walker is disqualified, not qualified, not fit to serve.
6: I'm a conservative because I think it's the best way to govern. Uh, I've been a Republican a lot longer than a lot of folks. I think I've got kids probably that could articulate the conservative platform better than some of the candidates that Donald Trump and, and his uh, his group uh, supported all across the country. You know, this wasn't the right brand for, for Republicanism. And I think uh, Herschel Walker will probably go down as one of the worst Republican candidates in, in our party's history.
1: Viewers of this program know who that is. Um, he's been pretty outspoken in his critiques of Trump. But Everyone in Georgia knows who that is. That is that is one of Georgia's most prominent Republicans, the, the the sitting lieutenant governor.
14: Yeah, and I mean, he's sort of saying the quiet part out loud that the Senator McConnell's and others will not say, which is that Herschel Walker is not the most electable candidate. And that's, you know, being that's clear in November. That's going to be clear, I think, in the early vote numbers we've seen, which Democrats are incredibly heartened by. But when Republicans actually speak out loud about what they feel about Herschel Walker and his place in the party. They give other voters and Republicans cover not to support him, especially those who might be on the fence or who might be who might not know a lot about Herschel Walker. This just sort of reinforces this idea that you don't have to support the party after all.
1: Alexi, you've got some great new reporting about um, a young Gen Z political superstar coming into close. Tell us about it.
14: Yeah, and I'm curious if Joy ran into him, Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost. He's only 25. He hasn't even taken his seat in the House yet, but Democrats have called on him to rally young voters and students today and tomorrow. The thinking is that young voters, those who haven't turned out yet, are motivated to do something that's more urgent. So they thought having him come, you know, the day before the day of the vote would be the most motivating for those voters. I had a colleague from Axios Atlanta, Emma Hurt, who was at the event with Frost and uh, Senator Ossoff. And she said that there were a lot of people there very excited, you know, getting up on their feet, cheering. She said it sort of felt like the reception that a boy band would get at times. (laughs) So, you know, clearly the rally worked uh, to their favor today, but that's how Maxwell Frost I think will continue to be used throughout the party.
1: Joy, you and I both had him on a show. he, He has a lot of retail political skills that people two, three, four times his age do not possess. (laughs)
13: He does. And he's going to be here tonight. We're going to have him on. And yeah, I mean, there is, let's just say there is a fandom uh, that he and Senator Ossoff already have. You know, it is really interesting because it used to be that Republicans were better at sort of fielding kind of candidates that appealed to sort of more the showbiz aspects. We've talked about this before. Democrats are generally not good at the showbiz part of politics. But this cycle, I feel like they did an excellent job in candidate recruiting in terms of finding people who could appeal outside of those who are obsessed with politics Uh, and Maxwell Frost is one of them. He's somebody who just appeals to people in a lot of the same way AOC does, that he's young and he speaks like a normal person, not like a politician. Ossoff's very similar. And so they, candidate, you know, campaigning together, I think is really powerful. They're having a lot of energy at their events because of that. Um, and I think the Buddy Act between Warnock and Ossoff has also done really good things for both of them as politicians. And And, you know, to something that you were just talking about a little while ago, Nicole, This is not a Trumpy state. This is not Florida, right? Florida feels like a state that is more sort of Trump's kind of milieu. Atlanta is now little Hollywood, right? Atlanta is a place where, you know, the supposed sort of liberal Hollywood media lives (laughs) and it it is doing business, billions and billions of dollars worth. And because, you know, rural Georgia is where the the um, the fans of Herschel Walker are. But just numbers wise, there are just so many more people, so many more humans and voters in the Atlanta suburbs and in Atlanta proper that it just becomes a numbers game. And when you take the independent voters and you take the Democrats, you're talking about a huge plurality of voters who, yeah, they'll vote for Kemp. But remember, Kemp defied Trump. What did Kemp do that was notable in the last couple of years? Whatever you want to think of him in terms of what he's done to voters. And I mean, a lot of what he's done to voters has been pretty nefarious that that, you know, Republican voter law is the reason we have long lines here. It is the Mm -hmm. reason that absentee voting has dropped and collapsed. But. He also survived standing up to Trump and refusing to to steal the election for him. He Mm -hmm. stood up not just to Trump, but to Lindsey Graham, who tried to pressure him to steal the election. And so right now, Georgia has become the center of not Never Trumpism, but stand up to Trumpism, because the Mm -hmm. lieutenant governor is literally saying that Trump's picks are the worst candidates ever to stand in the Republican Party and getting away with it. And he is somebody who's seen as somebody who could build the future for a new Republican Party that walks away from Trump. And Kemp, while he doesn't push Trump away by name, he pushed him away in the most fundamental way he could have by not going along with his cuckoo idea that he won this state, which he didn't. And so the problem is this is a, prag- a more pragmatic state than a state like Florida. Trump can't pull his shenanigans here. He's gonna be here virtually today. He's doing a phone, like virtual town hall for Herschel Walker. That's a pretty big climb down for a former president of the United States who trades on his rallies as the way that he projects his political power and influence.
1: It's amazing. And all those Republicans have testified in a criminal investigation into him. I mean, he could also Trump could also Georgia could be the first place where he's indicted criminally for the coup plot. Um, Correct. Funny Willis gathers yeah. the evidence to, to do that. Um, all right. So Joy is going to interview, as she says, Senator Raphael Warnock, as as well as Congressman-elect
13: Frost. Right. Yep. Joy, who else you have? Yeah, we're excited. It's going to be great. We're going to talk to both of them. Um, and so we're going to have, we have some great political reporters. Sahil Kapoor is going to be here. Um, and so we're going to talk to our guys. Our reporters get the best journalism out of what's happening in Georgia. And uh, we are going to lead off, though, with Senator Warnock. And by the way, the invitation is still open to Herschel. Herschel <laughs> Walker, you wanted to debate me. Brother, come on down. There's a seat right here. There's a crowd behind me. They would like to hear from you. So at Manuel's Cavern, everybody knows it. You'll get a good reception, some great food. Come on down, Herschel. The water's fine. Come and talk or- to me. My name is Joy. There's nothing to be
1: afraid of. <laughs> I'll, order the, I'll order the Uber if you get a yes.
9: Um, <laughs> Joy, there
13: thank you so- go. That's a
9: deal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll all be watching you at, six, at seven. Uh, Patricia and Alexi are sticking around. Thank, we're going to get to that you. other reporting that we're talking about. We'll be joined also by Nick Corsonetti, still ahead as well. As we've been discussing, early voting in Georgia's Senate runoff has been strong. It's not the whole story how Georgia's new voting law that Georgia suspension signed by Governor Kemp suppressed those absentee mail-in voters heading into tomorrow's election. Plus, Fox News facing a $1.6 billion with a B dollar defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems after spreading lies and misinformation about that company in the wake of the 2020 presidential election. There are big new developments to tell you about and a mysterious headline. From Tehran, that the Iranian regime was disbanding its morality police, the hardline enforcers, the Islamic Republic's strict dress code. But there is a lot of uncertainty about what that means and what is actually happening. We'll sort through it, what we know later in the show. Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Don't go anywhere.
0: Caesar's Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesar's rewards.
1: So as we've all been discussing, there are new laws on the books and there's some fantastic brand new reporting in The New York Times that explores how even though this Georgia runoff election is seeing historic in-person early voting numbers, voting by mail is a completely different story. Quote, data released by the Georgia Secretary of State showed that mail voting in the state's November election Plunged by 81 percent from the level of the 2020 contest, while a drop was expected after the height of the pandemic, Georgia had a far greater decrease than any other state with competitive statewide races. That's according to a New York Times analysis. The numbers are the first sign of how the 2021 law may have affected the election in Georgia. The law was signed by Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican and backed by GOP state lawmakers who said that the changes would make it, quote, easier to vote, harder to cheat. It significantly limited drop boxes, added voter identification requirements, and prevented election officials from proactively mailing out absentee ballot applications. Joining us, the author of that reporting, New York Times domestic correspondent Nick Corsiniti. Nick, there wasn't any fraud in Georgia in the drop boxes or the absentee ballots, was there?
15: No, there was not.
1: So, so tell me, I mean, this, this was a bombshell, and it really... It sort of cuts the euphoria, if you will, about the amazing early voting numbers. With this reality check, there's been an 81 percent drop in absentee mail voting.
15: Yeah. And when you look at what SB 202, the Georgia voting law, was kind of setting out to do in the atmosphere in which it came into being, it was after mail voting was embraced widely by Democrats, by voters of color and kind of helped flip Georgia blue in 2020. So the law that was passed last year significantly limited drop boxes, made it so that election officials and the secretary of state couldn't proactively mail out um, mail ballot applications to voters, which is a very uh, effective way of letting voters know that this is an option that, and this is how they could vote. Um, and it also you know, added new other identification restrictions and things like that to mail voting. So it really put mail voting, I think, in, in its crosshairs and We saw that play out in the uh, general election. You know, other states like Michigan saw mail voting drop by about 50 percent, which was expected after an election held in a pandemic to one that's held in a post-pandemic era um, and just seeing turnout kind of drop from a presidential to a midterm election. So there was some kind of drop off. But seeing just the level and the extent to which mail voting dropped in Georgia, you know, appears to be one of the one possible effect. Of the new voting law. Now, at, at the same time, turnout alone is is a very murky indicator for trying to understand the impact of this voting law. You know, it, it, it obscures any kind of difficulties or challenges that voters had to overcome to simply cast their ballots. I talked to one voter who he was actually a volunteer with a voting rights organization, so this is someone who knows the ins and outs of this voting law and thought that the drop box that would be near his house would still be open past five p.m. And it turned out it wasn't. He's a student. So he couldn't cast his ballot when he wasn't in class by uh, drop boxes, wouldn't have been able to mail it back in time to get it in election officials hands by election day in order for it to count. So he had to wake up early before class to vote on election day. And he said he waited in line for about 45 minutes or so. So, you know, turnout obscures those kind of issues, too. So I think it's going to be a long time until we fully know exactly what this law did to impact the turnout and voters in the midterm elections. But one thing we can clearly see is male voting took a nosedive in Georgia.
1: And being a patrician, so interesting that it took a nosedive, again, much, much larger than any other battleground state. And I remember covering the law at the time. I had Brad Raffensperger on the show, and he says it's a good law. And I, I said, that's an opinion, but what does it do? He said, prevents fraud. And I said, was there any fraud? He said, no. So, again, it was a—, it was a solution looking for a problem that doesn't exist in Georgia. And it's amazing what not going along with a coup does, right? There was no political price to pay for Kemp and and Raffensperger. But talk about the, the grassroots work that Democrats have had to do to educate voters to get around a law again that was solving a problem that didn't exist.
10: Yeah, so uh, both parties have had to re-educate their voters on how to vote with the new rules in place under SB 202. I'll tell you two of the biggest um, reasons that it is so much harder to vote by mail. You have to have a printer because in order to just do an application to get your absentee ballot, you have to print it off and put your signature on it and then go ahead and mail it in. I haven't had a printer in my home for five years. Most people, especially younger voters, don't have printers. Um, It's just much, much harder just to get the absentee ballot back. It also shortened the window from when the um, Secretary of State could send it and when it could be received. A lot of this goes back to Election Day in Georgia in 2020, when Donald Trump had won the popular vote on Election Day. And then as those mail-in returns came in and were counted and counted Mm. and counted, that window shrank and shrank and shrank. And you could just feel Donald Trump's anxiety and anger and fury increase. And not all of that was incoming to Georgia lawmakers. It was also incoming to voters, Republican voters, who then turn around and demanded their GOP lawmakers make some kind of a change. It's just much harder. And then on the drop boxes, the law changed to say that you have to go inside a polling location only during voting hours to access a drop box. And even then, it is just, it's limited by population. And so you can't have as many as you want if you're a county. It's really capped at 165000 per one Dropbox. So the idea of Dropbox as being a convenient way to do this, that's off the table. And the idea of even just getting an absentee ballot, I have multiple friends who have said, look, I've got two and three degrees. I cannot figure this out. I'm just going to go wait in line. And so a lot of those lines that we saw and those very high numbers of single day turnout, that was because it's harder to vote by mail. Mm-hmm. Also, the runoff shrank from 17 days of early voting to five days, all compressed into that. And so we don't know exactly how Election Day is going to Tomorrow, because we think a lot of people have been displaced onto Election Day. Mm-hmm. And so that will be probably in favor of Republicans. And we'll just have to see exactly what happens.
1: I mean, Alexi, it's so amazing that that drop boxes, I think, are one of the most secure ways to vote. There are far more signature requirements for an absentee ballot. You know, Republicans, in their folly to address fraud that didn't exist, addressed security threats that don't exist. They went after the most secure forms of voting. Just talk about what we will know, you know, 48 hours from now about these laws and about the results that we didn't know, that we don't know at this point.
14: Well, I think the early turnout numbers, especially, again, among young voters and voters of color, speaks to what you were just talking with Patricia about, which is the organizing work that these grassroots leaders have done, really sort of encouraging people to vote early in case there are any problems that arise with their voting. And, you know, that's important because, as Patricia was saying, these rules have just made it more challenging for people across the board to figure out how to even access their ability to vote. We will see tomorrow whether and how the extent of that affected Democrats, I guess, we will also see whether and how it cut down on the fraud that didn't exist. Uh, Or led to more voter fraud in some cases. But I, I think, you know, Republicans want this to be their ongoing culture war. And they love talking about how, again, as we were just discussing in 2020, they say things went awry with no evidence. And they've used that conspiracy theory to change laws and make it harder for people to vote.
1: That's amazing. Nick, Patricia, Alexi, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Nick, thank you for your reporting. Ahead for us, the deposition of a top member of the Murdoch family in that $1.6 billion with a B dollar lawsuit against Fox, where Dominion's defamation case stands after so much disinformation. That story's next.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
1: Potential lesson in actions and consequences. Lachlan Murdoch, he is the chief executive of the Fox Corporation. He's the oldest son of Rupert Murdoch. He was set to be deposed to answer questions under oath as part of a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit. It all goes back to Donald Trump's big lie in the bullhorn that Fox News gave that asinine and unproven allegation that there had been widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Specifically, what some of its personalities had to say on air about Dominion voting systems in the context of some larger conspiracy. While Fox has in the past settled other very sensitive lawsuits before they've gone to trial, the New York Times is reporting this, quote, "A a settlement with Dominion appears to be a remote possibility at this point. Fox has said that the broad protections provided to the media under the First Amendment shield it from liability. The network says it was merely reporting on Trump's accusations, which are protected speech even if the president is lying. Dominion's complaint outlines examples in which Fox hosts did much more than just report those false claims. They endorsed them. Joining us now, Nick Confessori, New York Times political and investigative reporter, also an MSNBC political analyst. Let me show our viewers, who may not be regular Fox viewers, some of what um, the kind of uh, coverage that Fox News gave and seemed to embrace about fraud and Dominion.
3: Dominion came under heavy fire after allegations that their machines caused thousands of votes in one Michigan county to be switched from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. The machines can be hacked. There's no question about
4: that. Their machines can be hacked.
11: The president's lawyers alleging a company called Dominion,
1: which they say started in Venezuela with Cuban money and with the assistance of Smartmatic software, a backdoor is capable of flipping
11: votes. You know, the votes in Dominion, they say, are counted in foreign countries. We have evidence of how they flipped the votes, how it was designed to flip the votes.
1: Nick, just take me through the stakes here for fucks.
8: Well, this is really important, Nicole. Um, You know, it's not against the law to make an honest mistake in journalism or on TV. Um, And thank God for that, right? Uh, What we have with Fox, though, uh, is a pattern of having these claims echoed and repeated for weeks and weeks after being told they were wrong. At one point, Dominion started sending producers and bookers um, a list of factual assertions and rebuttals uh, to get them to stop doing this. What today's testimony from Lachlan Murdoch could reveal is how far up this knowledge went. Well, what we don't know in suing Fox as a corporation, it's important to show Fox took responsibility for this and knew it was happening. So this um, deposition could tell us a bit if, if Lachlan Murdoch, the top of the food chain at Fox, was aware that the claims are being on the air all the time were, in fact, uh, without merit or base.
1: You know, um to your point about making mistakes, I misspelled jail on TV today. So it is good that we can be stupid on TV. But this is so much more what they did, and I, and I wonder. I mean, we have a we have a window into what Sean Hannity and um, who's on after him, um, Laura Ingram, was texting Mark Meadows. I mean, they clearly knew that Trump mm-hmm. had lost and that the claims were bogus based on the kinds of things that they were texting Mark Meadows. I mean, how much are their private? communications acknowledging what they actually knew and believed going to be contrasted to their on-air statements?
8: I'm sure quite a lot. And the essence of the lawsuit is to prove that Fox and these hosts were aware of the truth at the time that they were echoing and repeating these lies. Uh, And the more important question in some ways, Nicole, is why were they doing this? And the answer is money. According to this lawsuit, the claim made by Dominion is that Fox was echoing these conspiracy theories because they were losing market share to One America uh, and to Newsmax. And so they felt they had to oblige the viewers who had come to believe the lies that President Trump was telling them. And they could not afford to tell the truth. And that's why we're here.
1: I think we've also come to understand the fuller picture of the damage that was done by the lies through the 1-6 committee hearings. This is some of um, Georgia election official Gabe Sterling.
12: A little after lunch that day, uh, lunchtime, I received a call from the project manager from Dominion Voting Systems, who was oddly, audibly shaken. She informed me about a a young contractor they had who had been receiving threats um, from a a video that had been posted by some QAnon supporters. It was a particular tweet that, for lack of a better word, was a straw that broke the camel's back, Um, had the young man's name. It was a very unique name. I believe it was a first-generation American. And it said, had his name. You committed treason. May God have mercy on your soul with a slowly twisting gif of a noose. And for lack of a better word, I lost it. I just got irate. Uh,
1: <laughs> that person was under threat because of these lies. So was Mike Pence. You know, if you're going for a more marquee name, there was a gallows created to hang Mike Pence because of the lie of voter fraud. I mean, how much is the actual physical danger that the lie put people in a part of this? Or is it more narrowly
13: focused?
8: Well, put aside the um, headline names, Nicole, it was the election administrators around the country, volunteers for canvassing boards, you know, kind of good citizens who are volunteering their time to do work no one else wants to do, to count votes and make elections work right. There have been threats against them across the country. And it is all rooted uh, in this cacophony of lies, this big lie about the stolen election. Uh, and the decision by the president and his lawyers and these news channels to advance those claims all around the country and convince a lot of people that they were true. That is the source of so much of the anger and dangerous behavior that we see. And it continued through the midterms. It is a lie that almost can't be undone by facts because people um, are there to believe that it's true instead of believing that they have lost. And that's been a poison to the democratic process, a poison to elections.
1: Does $1.6 billion hurt Fox?
8: It even hurts Fox. It would hurt me, it would hurt you, but it definitely even hurts Fox.
1: Um, Or we would end, you or me, but um, as as you said, these lies (laughs) are lucrative. um, So it's interesting that it's a meaningful sum, even for Fox. Um, Nick, we're so glad you're on this story. We're going to continue to um, call on you to to take us through the big developments. Thank you for being with us today. Shifting gears for us, what is really happening in Iran after reports that the regime's so-called morality police has been disbanded is that window dressing or is that real we'll break down that story after a quick break don't go anywhere after months of protests ignited by a young iranian woman's death in the custody of that country's morality police a senior iranian announcement made a stunning and somewhat suspect announcement over the weekend that the morality police would be abolished according to state media keep in mind the source, Iran's Attorney General announced the ban. There are major questions about the legitimacy and veracity of this announcement. Demonstrators in Iran seemingly dismiss these reports entirely and continue with plans of three days of general strike across the country, heaping more pressure on the regime, which sees its greatest threat since coming to power in 1979. Let's bring in Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor to President Obama, now an MSNBC contributor. How did you, I know a lot of Iranian um, dissidents really viewed this with immense skepticism. How did you see this as sort of papering over what they're actually doing or real?
7: Well, I think there are a couple of things you can take away from this, Nicole. The first is the way in which this rolled out indicates either some disagreement or tentativeness in the government itself. This was not an assertive announcement from the Supreme Leader's Office. Uh, This was kind of put out there almost like a, a trial balloon or almost reflective of potential divisions inside the Iranian government. That tells you that you're talking about a government that doesn't really have its stuff together, that doesn't really know what its playbook is. They've tried the crackdown playbook and it's still not working. The second thing is, even if this announcement were true, it is clearly Too little, too late. Uh, And a lot of these revolutions demands that, you know, might have, if you'd met them early in the revolution, might have. Uh, led some people to go home. Right now, those demands are no longer just to abolish the morality police. It's against the entire nature of the regime of the Islamic Republic. So the main takeaway is this is not going to mollify the protesters. This is not going to turn off the unrest that we've seen. And it speaks to a regime that is badly rattled by what's happening in the streets.
1: I mean, it seemed directly targeted to Western audiences, not to alleviating any of the brutality on the mostly women, young women and young people who are out in the streets. What is the danger of something that's this sort of propaganda driven? And what do we need to watch out for when covering this regime with the appropriate amount of skepticism and distrust?
7: Well, uh, yeah, it speaks to some cynicism here. I mean, in, in terms of the response of the protesters, I have to think that unless they see fundamental changes in the nature of the regime, uh, this is not going to go anywhere in terms of addressing their concerns. Um, and 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 just to be specific, in the announcement saying that they would do away with the morality police that they haven't even really confirmed, they also made clear that they'd continue to enforce social controls. So again, this doesn't change things. Uh, You you might call the morality police something different. You might fold it into some other aspect of uh, what is essentially a police state apparatus there with some uh, regime affiliated militia. Uh, But this is just not going to meet the demands of the people that we've seen so bravely on the streets for all these weeks. Uh, and, And I think what it portends is continued unrest in Iran for For really months to come here, because there's a kind of irreconcilable difference between the demands of the protesters for fundamental regime change uh, and a regime that obviously does not want to let go of the grip of power.
1: Do you think we have a full picture of the brutality that the protesters are enduring?
7: I don't, uh, because these protests appear to be completely nationwide. The Iranian government goes to great lengths to try to conceal the truth from outsiders. We had glimpses of it from social media. And what we see is at times horrifying. And so, again, even though you may have announcements like these that are tailored, like you said, in part to international audiences, uh, the lived reality of Iranians on the streets is what ultimately is going to determine how protesters view this regime's willingness to negotiate or evolve. Uh, and we have not seen anything on the streets that suggests that this is a regime willing to change its ways.
1: It's just amazing. Um, And it's it's, honestly, it's challenging to to get it right and and to cover it. We're really grateful to you for helping us sift through this. Ben Rhodes, thank you so much. Quick break for us. We will be right back. Two quick and important updates will be following throughout the week in those investigations into Donald Trump and his family business. First, in New York State Supreme Court this afternoon, the jury in the Trump Org tax fraud trial officially began deliberations. Former CFO Alan Weisselberg faces a 15-count indictment, and the company stands accused of a 15-year scheme to compensate top executives off the books. Meanwhile, this one's really interesting. The Manhattan D.A., Alvin Bragg, is hiring this man. His name's Michael Colangelo to help with that office's criminal investigation into Trump. New York Times reports this. Colangelo, who acted as third in command at the Justice Department, led the New York AG's civil inquiry into Trump. And now he'll be one of the leaders in the criminal investigation as well. Pretty significant development, potentially. We'll stay on it. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for letting us into your homes during these extraordinary times. We are grateful.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.